What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is rapper, hip-hop scientist, performer, teacher, and creator of hip learning, Naru Kwana. Naru, thank you for joining us today. Peace, how you doing? So, Naru and I go back 30 years. 30 years ago, I was in kindergarten, and I had the blessing of having Naru as one of my classroom teachers. In these years, I've been hearing about your work as a hip-hop scientist. I want to get into that later, but first, let's go way back. Before I met you 30 years ago, you had already been in the world of Oakland hip-hop for some time. Mm. Let's start from scratch. What were your earliest experiences of hip-hop in Oakland like? Well, my, my earliest experience was 1979. That's the first time that I heard hip hop. I was 14. Now, I know you probably can't imagine a world without hip hop, but there was <laughs> there was such a place. And um, I, I remember it vividly, and I've told the story often because it was summertime, and we had a couple of radio stations, and I can't remember exactly what radio station was on, but it was Rapper's Delight. And... Um, I couldn't believe it. I had never heard anything like it. And I, and I ran outside and my friends were, we were all running out to, to ask each other if we heard the song. Did you hear that song? That song, the hippie, hippie, hippie song, you know? And I was already writing poetry and stuff and doing music. So it was like a perfect marriage because I couldn't really sing, but I knew I could rap. So I started rapping like immediately, like this that same day. Like we we kept requesting the song mm. over and over. Back then, you could like call into the radio and request, and I'm sure it was the most requested song because they played it over and over and over. And we were we were learning it, you know, <laughs> learning the words and laughing at some of the stuff. And it was just a beautiful experience, you know, for me to be introduced into hip hop. Um, that way and and then the later on find out that that wasn't even like a, one of the stronger forms of hip-hop there were like other artists who were like much deeper and better rappers or whatever but for us that was that was it man for me it changed my life well and in my lifetime there's always been different hip-hop radio stations in the bay area before that what type of stations were playing rap music that was a whole brand new thing well, it was like I said, there was no rap music, so it was it was played. That that song was played on the mainstream, like uh, KDIA, KSOL. Uh, I think those were the two main stations that we listened to, and it wasn't uh, so segregated. Now they played like all kinds of different music on, on the station. Of course, there would be certain times of the day where they would play certain things, but um, we heard everything, and so. Um, I don't even listen to the radio anymore unless it's uh, like a, sta- a station like yours, like KPFA. But um, like I don't listen to mainstream radio because to me it's it's just like all programmatic and it, and it's really not really playing local artists and stuff. So I, I prefer college stations or you know just make my own my own music list. And so yeah, those were the two main stations I believe: KDIA and KSOL. And you said you started rapping immediately after that, after you heard Rapper's Delight on the radio. At some point, you started going by the rap name Sir Quick Draw. Can you talk about where that came from? And what were you rapping about at the time? Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so s- the, the name Sir Quick Draw came from this uh, cartoon character named El Cabong that was um, 
I think it was a Warner or Hanna Barbera, one of those things. He was this this horse, and and he would he would turn into the quick draw like a superhero, and that was like one of my favorite uh, shows. And I got the name uh, Quick. That was my nickname. I got that as a youth. Uh, I was just very fast runner, um, so I kind of joined those two together. Uh, when I started rapping, I, you know, everybody had to have a rap name and Sir, the title Sir was on front of a lot of uh, people's rap names at that time. So I, I used a Sir and um, that's that's how that name came about. And what I was rapping about, my first uh, song that came out was called Rapaholic. And I was talking about my love for rap. Um, I actually won a, Cal- a, 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 a contest at Calix, Cal Berkeley Station. And I got a record deal with this company uh, called Baywave Records, who were affiliated with Malcola. Malcola was the distributor. They, they put out everybody back in, in the day. Um, and that was my uh, my first record I put out. I believe it was 86 or 87 when I, when I put a record out. And I, I couldn't believe it because there weren't a lot of people in Oakland putting out rap records at the time. And... Um, that's that's kind of my experience. Um, but I rapped about uh, everything. I uh, I rap, used to rap about riding my bike. When I changed my name to MC Quick, that was my next name after Sir Quick Draw. Uh, I was rapping about riding my bike. I just rapped about stuff that I enjoyed, you know. And and uh, you know, then I rapped about things going on in in the community, and you know, things that I enjoyed doing, um, having fun, you know dating beautiful women, that type of stuff. You know, I was, I was young, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what it was. So, I mean, that's the earliest days of hip-hop in the Bay Area at all, right? Oh, for sure. Can you kind of paint us a picture of what that looked like? We hear about things like Too Short selling cassette tapes out the back of his trunk. You were around before that was even happening. What was happening? What did that look like when you were coming up as a young person? Paint us a picture. So... Th- that is true. Too short was not not only sell well. He he was selling them on the back of the bus. He didn't have a car. <laughs> we would we would we would ride the forty line. So the forty line and the forty three would go all the way from Berkeley all the way out to Deep East Oakland. So some of us we would just be on the bus riding back and forth. Uh, you know, we had boom boxes and stuff back then. We would be playing music and rapping, or you know, somebody did might have cassettes and selling them. Um, you know, there might be a little a little marijuana smoke um, in the air in the back uh, um, of the bus. <laughs> bus driver have to stop the bus sometime and, you know, tell us to turn the music down or don't smoke on the bus, that type of stuff. And um, so it was it was a vibrant time and it felt a lot safer. You didn't hear a lot about gun violence and all that type of stuff. Very rarely heard anything like that. So we felt super safe. Uh, riding on the bus, you know, you might, there might be a little funk with some different neighborhoods from time to time, but usually it was generally pretty cool to be on the bus. We didn't ride BART a lot back then. It was, it was mostly the buses. And then there'd be certain spots like the East Mount Mall in East Oakland where we'd all meet up and, um, you know, all the rappers would, you know, we would rap. And back then we we had what, what we call written raps and we didn't really uh, freestyle off the head a lot. Uh, we would all write and memorize our rhymes and then test them out on each other. And, uh, you know, sometimes we would be clowning each other. And uh, I remember vividly this one guy named Davey Def one day, he just started rapping about stuff right in front of us. Like he didn't he didn't have anything written. 
And we were just amazed, like, man, we had never seen it before. Like, oh, wow. So that made everybody step their game up and start, you know, freestyling or coming off the head. You know, we call it coming off the head. To me, a freestyle is just a rap that doesn't have like any, uh, I wouldn't say substance, but it doesn't have uh, any theme. It's just like you just rhyme in and all, all over the place. But coming off the head is like when you just rapping right on the spot. So we started doing that. And then another spot we'd be at would be Berkeley on Durant Street in Telegraph, uh, right by the uh, UC Berkeley campus, because uh, they had the record stores over there. So a lot of us would take our tapes and we would, you know, stand in front of Leopold's or Rasputin's or Amoeba and, and try to sell our, our tapes outside. This is cassette tapes now. We, we didn't have CDs yet. There was all cassette tapes. We would have dub decks and we would make our cassettes and dub them and, and go out and try to sell them, you know, for like five bucks. But Too Short was the master of that. He, his style was so different and raunchy <laughs> and, and um, that, uh, you know, you can even play it in the house. You'll get you'll get in trouble or get a whooping or something if you play Too Short in the house. So you had to sneak and play Too Short's music uh, uh, if you were like a teenager. And um, yeah, I remember remember vividly one of my cousins. His name is Kenan Foster. Uh, he used to produce for Too Short, and um, yeah, I actually got to meet Too Short, and I, I did a little work with him back in the day. But um, yeah, he's definitely a legend. And there were so many many rappers um, that I can't even name them all. But uh, we all kind of came up together and didn't know anything about the music industry or anything. And we just were rapping for the fun of it and making our own cassettes and, and, and having a good time. And then some of, some of us would end up doing things on major labels or making our, our own labels and putting our own stuff out in a more, um, I guess, professional manner than just writing our name on a cassette and selling it. Right, right, right. You've been around this world for a very long time, from the earliest days of hip-hop in the Bay Area, and you're still rapping now. You're still in love with the culture. I'm wondering if you can reflect a little for us on the changes in that time. We've seen a lot of Bay Area rappers come and go. Some have passed, unfortunately. But things have changed in the culture a lot from cassettes to CDs and subject matter, technology, all that. Can you reflect a little bit on the changes in hip-hop culture locally here in the East Bay? Well, you know, for me, the Bay Area has always been very unique. Like, other places usually have, like, a general sound, like L.A., you know, you would you would equate that to, like, the gangster rap thing. New York was, was, was kind of, they had a little more variety. Uh, you would have the positive stuff, but and then you would have some braggadocious stuff, and you know. But the Bay, you, you couldn't really ever put your finger on it. You know, like had so many different styles. Um, definitely had you know the street element, where we're talking about things that are going on in the neighborhoods, and 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 if you lived in in the hood, the environment that that we things we would see. But we also had very fun, exciting rap. We had very militant political rap. Um, I mean, we had we had this one group I remember called the Surf MCs, man, and they were just talking about surfing, you know, like like even surfing the bay. But that, you know, they were talking about that. Like, was, I think they might have been out of Santa Cruz or something. I remember they formed or Berkeley or something. But like, I heard so many different styles back then. And to be honest, like now I don't listen to a lot of the the uh, stuff on the radio. Like I was saying. But what I when I do hear stuff, it, it all sounds like almost the same, almost like there's no difference. And then the content is just always like 
don't know. It, it seems so horrible, the stuff that I hear on the radio. But like there's always been underground scenes throughout the the all of hip hop that I've been around. And I've always gravitated more to the underground backpack rappers and um MCs that uh and that uh you know just spoke their truth and weren't weren't trying to just rap to fit in, but just really talked about what they go through and, and those type of things. I do still see some of that, but it's not, seems like it's not publicized as much. I have to seek it out. And so I'm around a lot of the young rappers and um, I tend to gravitate towards more uh, people that are more spiritually minded or people that are, you know, along the same lines of thinking as I am. We have a lot of rappers now, like in the community who are talking about health and wellness. I love love that that's that's what i think hip-hop should be about and i'm not i'm not saying that some of the other stuff isn't valid i'm saying that there's not enough variety being played um in the mainstream um and what's what's what i've seen is just a, a change in in people who just get into rap to make money because back then when we started there was no thought of making money we didn't even know that you could make money we just wanted to put our music out you know there was no no financial reward. <laughs> I mean, I think Two Shirt might have been the first one we saw like make money and get a record deal and actually like get like ride around in a Cadillac or whatever he was doing at the time, have some big chains. Um, so you went from not making much money in the hip hop world to working with youth, which of course is another world where we don't make so much money. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about that transition and that decision to work with youth. And was there a point that it felt like you had to put music on the back burner and put it aside in order to to do your work? Well, the beautiful thing about uh, working in a classroom setting is that I always have summers off. So I always got a chance to, to do my music full time in the summer. Um, but literally, I was in high school, I went to Oakland High, and my mom, she was an administrator at the YMCA, and they, they ran many different... Um, programs, after school programs. And one day, um, I think she needed a sub for one of the programs. Um, and, and she asked me to do it. I don't really want to do it, but I remember vividly, I wanted some Nikes back then, you know, Nikes were so hot. They were like the thing to have, you know, and she said she was not going to buy them for me. But if I went to work for her, I could make money and she would match whatever I made. And, 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 so I, I I did it and I just fell in love with it. And I couldn't believe that they were going to pay me to play sports and, and eat up all the snacks and, and, and hang out with kids and, and get to tell them what to do. Like, cause I was in high school. So, you know, like, wow, I get, you get paid for this. <laughs> and granted at the time I was in school, I was thinking about becoming an attorney. I had all these other dreams, but man, once I started working with, with the youth, it was just like a perfect fit for me. And I just fell in love with it. And, you know, um, I took some classes and I, I actually started working with infants first. And then I moved up to preschool. And then um, while I was working at preschool, this place called uh, the Snuggery in Berkeley, that's where I met um, Eileen Carey. And she's the one who told me about Walden School, where you went and asked me um, if I would be interested in being um, uh, helping run the after-school program there. And then, granted, I was young. I was like 22. I was really young. And um, 
she just liked the way I worked with the youth. And she, and I came in and started working at Walden. And yeah, as you know, I worked at Walden for almost 30 years. Uh, so I kind of got trapped into that. But I, I, at the same time I was working at Walden, I was always making music at home. Um, I had a home studio, had a, like an MPC 2000 ASR 10. I had a 24 track mixing board. So I was always coming home and, and making music and then I would put on events too in the summer or sometime during the school year as well. So music has always been a part of what I did, but I always kind of kept music separate from teaching until I started uh, doing hip learning. <laughs> and and I actually started hip learning at Walden School because I heard some kids at recess saying, singing a, a rap lyrics to this song called uh, You Ain't Number the Hoochie Mom. It was a horrible song. Uh, <laughs> the lyrics were so terrible. But I didn't stop them for some reason. I just was listening like, are they going to really say it? And then they were just singing it, but they knew the whole song. And I was like, wow, they knew like two, three minutes of a whole song. And I remember I had just got permission to like start teaching science to the first graders and kindergartners and they were bored. And I, and a light bulb just went off like, wow, what if I put, you know, the science lessons, you know, in hip hop form and, um, they say as they say the rest is history. I did that, brought in ten songs about the human body, and um, made burnt my CDs. At this time, we had CDs, <laughs> burning CDs, and gave all the students. And not only did the students come to school singing it, but the parents came to school singing it as well. And and then people started telling me I should turn it into a business, and they were telling me about grants, which I knew nothing about. I didn't believe that people gave away free money, and and I. I, I started to look into it and I, I, I wrote a grant, me and my wife at the time, uh, well, she's still my wife, but I'm saying we, we were writing a grant at that time. And um, we got our first grant, $35,000 to do hip hip learning and produce it and put on a, a play and um, produce the music. So that's that's how uh, I, I became the, the hip hop uh, scientist or Dr. Science as some, some of my students call me. But um, yeah, that's how that, that all went, came about. You took on my transition already. I was going to ask you to move on to talk about hip learning next. I'm wondering if I can put you on the spot to spit something from hip learning for us. <laughs> As if that's something hard. <laughs> that's easy, right? <laughs> I'll do the intro. It goes like this. In our chest cavity, that's where we're going to start. Blood is supplied to the body through the, and then I, you know, you would answer, the heart. Holding the thought would be hard to maintain. We couldn't even think if we didn't have a brain. See, there you go. The body framework has 206 bones in each skeleton. Count if you wish. Oxygen intake. Watch out. Here it comes. Process the air with the help of our lungs. Lungs. Hey, there you go. Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that's that's how hip, hip learning started off. You know, that's a little intro. And then I, I would go into all the lessons. I um, had lessons about the heart the lungs, uh, the brain, each one had their own own rap. And um, the, the children would learn that and then they would come back to school. And it was kind of a gateway for the things I wanted to talk about. Then we could move into hands-on stuff or some written work, um, you know, just after they had that foundation. So it, it, was a, it was just a fun way to learn. I had fun doing it and the children really enjoyed it and the parents seemed to enjoy it too. So um, that's, that's, yeah, hip learning is still, I have a new, new one out now. I, I got more grants as I kept going forward, 
Um, I have a new one out called uh, Our World, Our Planet. So we're talking about more environmental things. Uh, we're talking about healthy eating. I have a song called Going Vegan because I recently, like for last four years, uh, turned, turned to a plant-based diet. Another one called Food Is Your Medicine. We talk about water. We talk about um, gas, like using no gas, switching electricity, things like that in, in, in this new one. Earthquakes. It's, it's, it's a pretty cool uh, project. So we're, we're starting to shoot videos for it now and, and hopefully get some of those out this summer. Before we move on, because I have some other things to ask you about, where can folks find out more about hip learning in those projects? Oh, respect. Yes, uh, hiplearning.org or .com. I, I own both of those. Um, I uh, The one that's out now is not up on the website yet, uh, but it is uh, available and like, iTunes and things like that. Uh, it's hip learning our world, our planet. Um, that's not up on my website. Only the uh, the O one is. But um, you can yeah. If, if you if you just like put my name in Narukwana N A R U K W I N A, you'll see that. And you know, and I and I also have some more traditional hip hop that I do too. I have another project out called The Gospel, um, and I'm working on like three other albums right now because. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of hip hop is this year. So I want to put some more projects out. That's right. Do you want to share a little bit more about gospel about that project? So that, that's a project that I, that I did during COVID and um, I wasn't able to really go out to studios and stuff and work with producers live. So I actually uh, met these guys from, from the UK um, on Instagram and, and they were like leasing beats and I had never done that before. So I got about 30 songs from them for like, who knows, it was a small amount of money. And I, I chose, I think, about 12 or 13 songs. And um, so the gospel was just how I was feeling during COVID. Um, I'm talking about relationships. I'm talking about uh, being black in America. I'm talking about, Man, all kind of things, just the way I was feeling. So it's a cool, cool album. It's one of my favorite albums I've ever done. And um, I got together with my guy, Bars. He's my engineer, uh, Jabari Bars. And um, we we added the vocals to the music and then put our effects and things on. And I think it came out really well. So, yeah, that that project is is out as well. Um, like I said, if you, Naru Kwana, the guy spell is spelled G-O-S- and then uh, dash spell S P E E L. So it's a play on the gospel. So, so our resistance in residence segment is intended to explore how artists relate to their artistic process while dealing with and trying to impact our social and political context. Art is a primary way that we can imagine a different world. Naru, can you, Naru, you consider yourself a community activist. What has that meant for you? What has that work been in relationship between trying to create a better world and your art? Yeah, you know, I, I think I, I got forced into community activism by some of my elders who told me, you should be rapping about Mumia. You should you should be rapping about this. You know about George Jackson and Black August and all those type of things. So they were informing me about things that I should you know, look into and, and educate myself about, you know, you know, they, they, uh, I guess they saw something in me that I might not have saw in myself. Cause I didn't really see myself as a community activist or a revolutionary or anything like that. 
and I'm not I'm not even sure if I, if I if I still see myself as a revolutionary. I'm I'm obviously I'm not a pacifist, but I'm not like I don't know. I'm not super militant either. I'm kind of like you know I I I can work with anybody. I like to I like to meet and talk to many different type of people, and um you know. So that's kind of how I got my start uh, in, in, you know, just helping with, with promotions, with marches and things like that. I was always, I was also a promoter because I promoted and produced events and a lot of people saw me out promoting. So they would ask me if, um, how much it would cost to promote stuff. So I was like, really, you'll pay me. So I actually started making more money promoting than I was, you know, making me, <laughs> making do my music. And so I had a, I had a production, uh promotional company uh, called Pounding the Pavement. So I would, produce a lot of events. I mean, promote a lot of events for people. They would bring me like, you know, 5,000 flyers and I, you know, I, I pass them out at all these events. So that's how a lot of people knew me. And I would only do events that I thought were positive for the community. I wouldn't, you know, promote any, any BS. So um, I think that's kind of how I got to know a lot of people um, in the community through, through my art and through my promotion and meet a lot of elders who were former Panthers or who have been incarcerated or who were uh, doing programming to, for the youth, you know, and I wanted to assist in that. And so I, I would go in, you know, as, at a starting role, but usually by the time I ended, I, w- I ended up being in some type of a leadership role um, just because I think that's just kind of the nature of who I am. I'm, 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 I have a lot of leadership qualities and I kind of know what I want to do and I work hard. So, like I said, I've been in the Black August Organizing Committee. Um, I started my, me and my wife started a nonprofit so we could help artists out with their contracts and help them uh, learn how to write grants. Um, I'm right now. I'm on the Oakland Equity Board, where we advise the City Council on the next 40 years of what Oakland's going to look like. We're dealing with all the environmental factors. Uh, we've been dealing with homelessness. Um, we we deal with zoning and and then contracts and who's who gets the contracts and all that type of stuff. So that's that's the type of, of community work I do. And then I just support uh, other organizations. I'm, I'm right now um, I'm I'm an independent contractor at the East Side Arts Alliance, and um, that that organization was uh, helped started by uh, help well was partially partially found, founded by Amiri Baraka, um, beautiful space. Um, just, it, they own their building. They also have housing upstairs. And so I'm, I'm helping them with bringing in programming and events there. Like I said, like we just saw each other at the Malcolm X festival. That's the event that they produced. That's their flagship event for the year. Um, yeah. And I'm, I was a stage manager at that event and also booked, um, lots of artists. So, also involved with food justice, uh, a lot of a lot of organizations doing food justice. Dealing with, we're definitely dealing with the plant based um, phenomenon right now. More people moving towards that, and that helps save our planet and it helps make people more healthy. I mean, literally, last four years ago when I did it, I was weighing two hundred and forty pounds and I had severe arthritis, and um, I did a cleanse, and um, I was told that I should try this diet while I did the cleanse, and. I just thought it was the most hilarious thing in the world. Like, what? I can't eat any meat. I can't drink alcohol. I can't have sugar. But it was the most 
beneficial thing I've, I've, I probably did in my life. Um, and it probably saved my life during COVID because it happened right before COVID and I was type two diabetic. So I don't know what, what could have happened to me, but I lost 40 pounds. Uh, a lot of my, um, inflammation and everything went away. So, you know, I don't try to convert people, but I do share, share my story with people about how plant-based, uh, diet has really shifted, um, how I feel. Thank you for that. We got to wrap up soon. I have one more question for you on a different subject. I used to see you riding your bike on MLK all the time, going either from <laughs> Oakland to Berkeley or Berkeley to Oakland, morning and afternoon. That's right. That's right. And we couldn't miss you because you had this shiny backpack. <laughs> yes. And yes. I really do mean a shiny backpack. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about your love of bikes. Yes. I mean, I, I've ridden a bike ever since I was three or four years old. I remember my cousin, Crystal, who's a, the same age as me, could ride, and I was so jealous. <laughs> and she taught me how to ride. And once I learned how to ride and got those training wheels off, I, I never stopped riding. And I'm actually really sad now because I used to play basketball a lot. My knees are just shot now. I cannot ride my bike the way I used to. I ride a, I ride a, a 350 uh, Piaggio Italian scooter. Um, and a lot of people say, oh, that's an upgrade. I'm like, no, it's a downgrade. I, I loved my bike. I would ride everywhere uh, on my bike. And it kept me so healthy, like my heart and everything. And um, yeah, I really miss. I have a stationary bike I ride at home now and listen to my music and practice, you know. But it's not the same. So, yeah, I, I really miss my bike, man. And um, you, you made me sad bringing that up. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, but <laughs> oh, I didn't mean to make you sad. I really brings back good memories seeing you on the street all the time. Yes, yes, I, I'll have to send you my song called "Just Rolling" that I wrote. Uh, I like, I think I was like eighty eight or eighty nine, and it's all about me riding on my bike. So you have to, you have to check that out. <laughs> Please do, and we'll make sure to air it along with the interview. Oh, that's funny. And you are listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Jesse Strauss, and this has been Resistance in Residence with this week's feature, rapper, hip-hop scientist, performer, teacher, and creator of hip learning, Naru Kwana. Naru, thank you for joining us. Oh, brother Jesse, thank you so much. It is my honor, and just to see someone that I've known <laughs> since kindergarten, man, is the work you're doing. I'm so proud of you, and um, please continue on. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance and Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. <laughs> <laughs>